we are continuing through our series of messages through the Gospel of John, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 42. Now, let me just give you a little insight into where we're going to be going in our preaching schedule. In the months of June and July, we're going to have a series through the book of Proverbs that I'm calling Wise Up. There's one thing I think all of us could use is more wisdom. Would you agree with that? All of us could use more wisdom. And so we're going to be looking at selected Proverbs over those nine weeks as we consider the wisdom that God provides from his word. But that means we're going to have four more weeks in the Gospel of John, Lord willing, and then we'll pick up John again in August. And so this morning we're considering these verses as we've been in the midst of this encounter between Jesus Christ and the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman of ill repute, of, of questionable background and character. And we've looked at this section because it is a long narrative. We've broken it down into three sections because we want to be able to get everything out of it that we can. And I've given three headings to these three sections. First, we looked at water when Jesus said he is living water and he could provide living water to her. Then we looked at the next week, worship. And so as Jesus was confronting her sinfulness, he just simply made a statement, hey, why don't you go get your husband? She immediately changed the subject. She brought up a religious controversy, a controversy about worship. Well, Jesus was happy to go down that rabbit trail, if you will, because at the end of the day, it's all about worship. All of us are worshiping something or someone. All of us have something or someone that is getting our attention, that is grabbing our affection and our focus. So Jesus was happy to go down this side road, if you will, on the subject of worship, and we looked at that last week. Now, the astonishing part of what we considered last week is that Jesus made a profound revelation to this Samaritan, the Jews would call them half-breeds, woman at the well of questionable background and character. She said, I know when Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. He will show us all things. And here's what Jesus said at the end of that last section we looked at last week. I who speak to you am he. In other words, Jesus revealed his identity, not to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He revealed his identity to this Samaritan woman of questionable character. I found that absolutely stunning. Well, this morning, the title of my message is this, Bearing Witness. Bearing Witness. And I get that word from right in our text. In verse 39, the text says, many Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. And we've considered this word testimony already in our study of the Gospel of John. The Greek word underneath it is the word from which we get our English word martyr. But in those days, the word martyr didn't mean somebody who died for their faith. It literally referred to someone who gave testimony in a court of law. They were a witness, a testimony, martyr. And so here we see that same word used here of this woman at the well. She was a witness for Jesus. One of the most improbable witnesses we might pick, this social outcast. Well, let's look at our focal text beginning in verse 27. This is God's infallible and inerrant word. Listen to it. 
The Bible says, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Bearing witness. It's possible for us to learn some evangelistic principles, some truths and things to know about bearing witness from one of the most unlikely people we could imagine, this woman at the well. Now, some of you, as soon as you heard the subject matter for the message this morning, you may have cringed a little bit. A sermon on witnessing, a sermon on evangelism, a sermon on sharing your faith with other people is the kind of thing that would give us, let's say, spiritual heebie-jeebies. Ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, it's one thing to have a sermon on tithing. Okay, we get it. It's one thing to have a sermon on righteous, holy living. That can be a little guilt-ridden. But it's altogether another thing to have a sermon, a message on evangelism on sharing your faith, on bearing witness. We can tend to think that, okay, the preacher's gonna try to compel me to basically be this glorified door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. I'm just trying to pitch this thing to people who don't really wanna hear about it and aren't interested in buying. Whenever I was in seminary, we had a weekly chapel on Tuesday morning after the first uh, classes. And at that weekly chapel, we were required as seminary students to turn in a evangelism report. And it was supposed to give a report of how many times we shared the gospel, how many times we witnessed to people that week, how many conversions we had as a consequence of our witnessing. And so every week, as a student, I had to turn in that witnessing report. I mean, that sounds something like maybe a sales manager would require of his salespeople to turn in on a Friday at the end of the week, right? How many contacts did you make? How many presentations did you give? How many successful sales did you close? Now, though that may not be the particular approach I would want to do, I would uh, see that evangelistic zeal 
maybe has been lost on many of us today. The importance of sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. That may not be our approach, but notice what the great evangelist D.L. Moody once said about his evangelism approach. He says, it is clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good points. Frankly, I sometimes do not like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. We can be very critical of how people share the gospel and how people evangelize and how people give their faith, maybe standing on a soapbox on a corner. Well, that's not the best way to evangelize. Well, I like the way he's doing it better than the way most of us do it, right? Not at all. So there are many reasons why bearing witness to Christ can be difficult. It can be a daunting task, and we can feel like that's something I'm thoroughly unequipped to do. And one of the reasons I think it feels that way is because often we have the wrong idea about all that witnessing or sharing our faith entails. Well, this account of this testimony of this completely transformed and changed woman I think can give us some instruction and we can learn some principles. There's three paragraphs we're gonna look at and so there's three principles that emerge from the passage I want to point out this morning. The first one is this. Number one, it can start with a simple invitation. Bearing witness to other people, sharing your faith with others can begin with just a simple invitation. She says, come see. (laughs) Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In this first paragraph of our passage, it's what it depicts, a simple invitation from this transformed woman. And that's the beginning stage of bearing witness, just giving a simple invitation. Come and see. Now, it's interesting. This first paragraph of our focal passage actually begins in verse 27 with these two words, just then. And that may not sound like a very profound statement, but it actually is profound when you think about the the narrative as a whole. Just then, right at that moment, what's John trying to communicate to us here? Several weeks ago, we considered the fact that with our theme in these messages, Jesus is God, that this appointment he had with the woman at the well was just that, a divine appointment. That Jesus Christ in his omniscience in his foresight, in his providence, planned and purposed and determined to have this encounter with this woman at that moment at that well. Now, I want you to think about what if the disciples who he had sent on an errand to go buy some food, to go gather some supplies, what would have happened if they came, say, five or ten minutes earlier to this conversation? They could have interrupted the conversation right at the moment when Jesus was about to reveal his personal identity. I who speak to you am he. Ego me. I am. If they had gotten there two minutes earlier, she may have missed that reality. But what if they had gotten there five minutes later? I just imagine in my sanctified imagination as they're walking towards the well from town and they see at a distance Jesus conversing with this woman. And they have to be thinking, Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) You don't talk to women in public, much less in private, at a well. And especially Samaritan women. There was a saying among Jewish rabbis in the first century which said that for a man to talk publicly, publicly with a woman, 
Even his wife was a distraction and considered a diversion from the study of the Torah, the law. And this view persisted in Judaism for centuries. I've told you before, it's sometimes interesting walking into my wife watching a movie, usually Hallmark, and I always joke about it. The other day I walked in and she's watching this Barbara Streisand movie, Yentl. You guys remember that movie? Barbara Streisand played a female Jewish girl in the early 1900s, around 1905, in Poland, but she desperately wanted to study the Torah, the law, but it was forbidden. And so what did she do? She pretended to be a man. She pretended to be a young boy just so she could study the law. Why? Because the perception and the concept is men don't talk about spiritual things with women. And here Jesus is talking about spiritual things with a woman, with a woman at the well this Jewish rabbi. Here's the thing we need to know about the Lord. Jesus is always lifting up women. The culture may be pushing down women. Jesus is always elevating women. Their status. Even this week, in light of the political wrangling and barking that's happening in our country, because of the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion, which indicates that Roe versus Wade may be struck down, we can hear a lot of rhetoric that those right-to-life evangelical Christians, they're just trying to take away the rights of women. Can I tell you that for 2,000 years of church history, whenever Christianity has entered a culture, a tribe, an unreached people group, it has always elevated women It has never put down women. This is the history of the Christian church because this is what it means to follow Jesus. Now, that includes lifting up and prioritizing baby women in the womb. Now, this woman, she left in a hurry, (laughs) so much so that she left her water jar behind. The very reason by which she came to this well to draw water, she left it behind because she was so overwhelmed by this encounter with Jesus. You see, her priorities at that moment radically changed. Notice what she said in verse 29 to the people in the town. She gets back to town and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, this is not the first time these two words, come see, have been used in the gospel of John. In the first chapter of John, you may remember when Jesus went up to Philip and said to Philip, follow me. And Philip became an evangelist. He goes to Nathanael and he says, hey, Nathanael, I've found the Messiah. In fact, notice what the Bible says in John 1, verse 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. Just a simple invitation. Come see for yourself. Now here in the fourth chapter, we see the same approach from the Samaritan woman at the well. She goes into town and she simply says, come and see. And this is the principle I want us to understand evangelism, sharing your faith, does not have to be complicated. It can begin with just a simple invitation. Come and see. 
Hey, would, would you be interested in coming to church with me sometime? Come and see. Hey, would you like to come over to my house maybe one evening this week and let's read the Bible together? In fact, you can even cheat. You can read the Gospel of John. Just stay a week or two behind me, right? And you'll be right on pace there to talk. You may think, I don't know much about the Bible. I could never do that. If you've been in church for more than 12 months, you know more about the Bible than most people that you work with or that you interact with. You just simply say, come and see. In fact, look at this next slide. We're not trying to sell something. We're trying to show something. We're not hawking a product. We're showing Jesus. This is exactly what this woman did, and she did a pretty incredible job of sharing Jesus. Come and see this man who knows me better than I know myself. And notice what else she said. She said, come and see a man who told me all that I've ever done. Now, again, she's going back to the town, her hometown, where she's had five different husbands, the town where she's living with a man who is not her husband. The townspeople knew all about her. And yet she comes and she says, come and see this man that knows all about my past. You might think that her past would be something of a sore subject. I mean, her coming to the well in the middle of the day is somewhat of an indication. She's trying to escape her past. But now, instead of being ashamed of her past, she just blurts out, Jesus knows all about my past. This is one of the most significant indicators that someone is genuinely converted, that someone is genuinely born again. Instead of trying to cover over their past, instead of trying to whitewash their past, instead of trying to hide their sin or act like they've got it all together, a genuine witness for Jesus is very open about their sinfulness. I was this way, and you won't believe what Jesus has done for me. And this is the reality of what forgiveness does in us. It motivates us to be a public witness. Sometimes new Christians are the boldest Christians because that forgiveness from God through Jesus is so real and fresh. You know, here's the thing. We are all natural evangelists for the things we love aren't we? We're all natural evangelists for the things we love. When the Bucks won the Super Bowl, I said something about it. <laughs> you don't have to ask me twice to tell you about my grandkids. I've got a cell phone with about 23,000 pictures of my grandchildren. I would be happy to share with you anytime you want. We're all natural evangelists for things we love. And this was the result of this woman's encounter with Jesus. She was a natural evangelist. She said, come see. Again, they knew about her reputation. They were well aware of her past, but she'd now obviously been transformed by this encounter with the Lord. How did they respond to her invitation? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. What an effective witness. What a profound witness. She's a witness who didn't receive any training. She didn't complete an evangelism class. She didn't have any uh, courses on presuppositional apologetics. 
She just knew Jesus changed her life. And so she is a witness. You've probably heard of the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple. You said it, I didn't. You're not supposed to say stupid in church. Oh, I just did. Let's change it. Keep it simple for sinners. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be all these things that you've got figured out of how can you, you can defend the faith. Just start. Come and see. Let's talk about the Lord. Let's read the Gospel of John together. Come and see. Here's the second principle. Number two, it may include a lengthy interval. Bearing witness for Jesus and then seeing results from that witness, it may include a lengthy interval. Verse 35 of the second paragraph says, do you not say, this is Jesus speaking, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. So when the disciples came back in verse 31, they came to him and they said, Rabbi, eat. I couldn't help but think in my mind, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie, you know, when Mrs. Claus says to Mr. Claus, Santa, remember that? I guess none of y'all grew up on that. <laughs> Santa, eat, Santa, eat. He was too skinny, right? Gosh, where were you guys? Why didn't y'all see that movie? It's profound. <laughs> and here the disciples come back and they're saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. And what does he say? I've already eaten. They said, who brought him a sandwich? I thought we were supposed to bring him food. Where did Jesus get something to eat? And then Jesus clarifies for them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Have you ever experienced something like that? Perhaps you are engrossed with some type of an activity, maybe some hobby that you really are interested in, and that activity becomes so captivating, so enthralling that you completely forget to eat. You can miss two meals and you don't even think about it because you're just so engaged in this. Anybody been there before? I know I am. I've got a home recording studio and I can get engaged and enthralled at laying down the different tracks and recording the different parts that I can go through lunch and breakfast and dinner. Of course, Amy, she doesn't care. I'm gone, so that's good. But, you know, I'm just there enthralled, fully engaged, and I forget to even eat. Maybe you're fishing. If you're a fisherman, you're out on the lake, and they're just biting, and you could just be reeling them in all day long, and you completely forget to eat. This is something like what is happening here. Jesus is so enthralled and engaged in the moment. He doesn't need any physical food. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is it that energized Jesus completely? What is it that fulfilled Jesus totally in this moment? It's the saving of souls. Jesus was captivated with the process of seeing people go from death to life. He was completely enthralled with the practice of seeing people go from dead to life, darkness to light. And doesn't this demonstrate for us something of the centrality and the importance of our own witness for Jesus? If this is Christ's heart that he's so enthralled with seeing people come to faith in Jesus, shouldn't we be enthralled with the same thing? I just imagine as the disciples are finally approaching the well and as he finally bids her on and she's walking away just as they approach, she's left her water jar and Jesus is just 
watching her go back to town. And I just imagine him praying for her. Lord, give her boldness in her witness. Let her share the truth about me and who I am with those people who have seen her as an outcast, as a pariah of their community. Lord, empower her witness so that many from her village come and see and know me as their savior. And just then one of the disciples says, hey, Jesus, you want a sandwich? I got a pickle. He says, guys, I don't need the food. I'm engrossed in this process of saving souls. And let me tell you, if Jesus was enthralled at the saving of souls then, he's enthralled with the saving of souls now. That's his focus. That's his energy. What does this tell you about Jesus' view of our world today, of the things that make the headlines today? Their relative importance to the saving of souls. Well, certainly Jesus is aware of all of our struggles. He's compassionate towards our corporate hardships and difficulties, but of ultimate priority to Jesus is not the stock market, but the saving of souls. Of ultimate priority to Jesus is not the fuel prices, but the freeing of prisoners to sin. Of ultimate importance to Jesus is not political squabbles, but people saved. That's what's of utmost importance to him. You can read the four Gospels, and you can look for times when Jesus made a comment or commentary about something political in their day, or some military action, or some government movement. You know what you'll come up with? Bupkis. <laughs> Nothing. Nada. The same is true for his disciples and his apostles in all of their letters. You won't find them opining about the political movements of the day. They were concerned solely with the saving of souls. And church, shouldn't that be what we're concerned about? Shouldn't that be what we're concerned about? This was Jesus' all-consuming passion. Now Jesus used this exchange with his disciples about this woman at the well and about her being saved to further give some insight and some principles into evangelism. Look again at verse 35. Jesus is speaking, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? This is the basic principle of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. You sow in one season, you reap in another season. You plant in one season, you harvest in another season. There is normally a lengthy interval between the two. You plant, four months goes by, you get to harvest. He, he even expresses this point in, the net, in verse 37. He says, for here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. So normally the sowing and the reaping, it happens at different times and involves different people. There's usually a delay. My daughter Ashley has decided this year she's going to become a gardener. How many gardeners we have, right? Now, she raises her hand high. I'm a gardener. She hasn't produced anything yet, but she's a gardener. Now, you don't plant squash and peppers today and expect to have them for supper tomorrow, right? 
You don't plant corn in the morning and think, we're going to have corn in the cob for supper tonight. That's not the way it works. We know there's an interval. There's a delay between planting and reaping, sowing and harvesting. Here, he says, four months. And that may be the case with your sowing of the gospel. And particularly here on Mother's Day, moms, sow the gospel into your children. There may be an interval. It may be four months. Maybe four years, and maybe four decades. Moms keep sowing seed. Keep planting gospel truth in your children. And here's the thing about sowing gospel seed. You never run out of seed. Every year I reseed our lawn. I'll buy a 50-pound bag of grass seed and go through and spread it in our lawn just to try to reseed it. I have to be really careful when I'm spreading that seed because I've got so much seed and I've got to ration it through the yard. And there's been times when I get to the end of the yard and there's more yard than I have seed in the bag. Anybody ever been there before? Oops, I was spreading it too thick over here. And I'm too cheap to go buy another bag. So I've got to ration it well. Here's the thing. Every time you reach in the gospel bag seed, it's always full. You're never going to run out of seed. Keep sowing, keep sowing, keep sowing spreading the gospel, and trust the Lord of the harvest to bring forth a harvest in his time. But that leads to the third and final thing to notice about bearing witness for Jesus. It can start with a simple invitation. It may include a lengthy interval. Finally, it could result in fantastic increase. It could result in fantastic increase. Verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, what did Jesus mean by that, white for harvest? As you can see in this graphic, this is uh, how grain ripens after being planted and going through the months of growing. And the grain, as it's ready to harvest, the stalk, the little tassels, and even the head of grain itself will become almost a bright white. And some Bible commentators have surmised, well, Jesus may have actually pointed out to a grain field. And there's a grain field, and he's pointing out to this field and says, see the fields, <laughs> they're white unto harvest. I read another possible explanation for what Jesus was saying here. A fellow by the name of H.V. Morton, he said this to say, he went actually to the very location where Jesus was at Jacob's well. And he said, as I sat by Jacob's well, a crowd of Arabs came along the road from the direction in which Jesus was looking. And I saw their white garments shining in the sun. Surely Jesus was speaking not of the earthly harvest, but of the heavenly harvest. And as he spoke, I think it likely that he pointed along the road where the Samaritans in their white robes were assembling to hear his words. In either case, the point Jesus is making is this. What previously seemed impossible to happen is possible because of the heavenly power he brings on the harvest. Think about it. How unlikely is it for an entire town of Samaritans who had strong disagreement with Jews? How unlikely is it for what the Jews refer to as half-breeds to come and seek salvation from a Jewish rabbi. What's the likelihood of that? And this woman 
who had previously been despised by her community, was now giving testimony. How unlikely that Jesus is going to bring a great harvest of souls among this group. And Jesus says that at this time, there is an opportunity before you, disciples. At this time, Christian, there's an opportunity. He says the fields are white for harvest. And further, he tells his disciples that you have the opportunity to reap where other people have sown. To reap where others have sown. Now, we're not sure who he's referring to here. He may have been referring to John the Baptist. After all, John the Baptist did preach in this region. He preached repentance here. He may even be referring to the sowing of the word of Moses. Like I mentioned before, the Samaritan's Bible only included the first five books of our Bible, the book uh, written by Moses. So Moses' testimony in Scripture could have been what he was referring to, that Moses sowed there. Regardless, the larger point Jesus is making is that you will have the opportunity to harvest and to see a harvest that you don't deserve to be a part of. You're going to enter into other people's labor. And what's incredible is that though this is the general principle, that there will be an interval, there will be a gap of time, there is sometimes in the supernatural aspect of this harvesting of souls, the interval between the sowing and the reaping is very short. And that can only be ascribed to the power of God. In fact, notice how Amos the prophet put it, predicting the days of this new covenant that we're in. Amos said this in Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. What's Amos saying there? He's saying there's coming a time in this supernatural harvest when, when the people who are doing the plowing, who are doing the tilling, who are doing the planting, they're going to overtake the people who are doing the harvesting. He's saying those people who are planting the vineyards and those very small seedlings that are going to grow into vines, there's going to be a supernatural harvest where they're going to be overtaken by the, those who are pressing the grapes into sweet wine. You see this? They're going to be happening simultaneously. They're going to be happening together. Jesus even says, others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. And both the laborer, the sower, and the reaper are rejoicing together. What this should cause us to realize is that when God uses our witness to save someone else, we are almost always experiencing the results of someone else's work. Today is the Sunday before our members meeting, and I'm going to introduce to you some new member candidates that we'll affirm at our members meeting on Wednesday night. And every time we, I meet with new members who are coming, and I have an interview with them, and I hear their story, it always reminds me, I'm enjoying the consequence of other people's labors. I'm enjoying the harvest, and we're enjoying as a church what other people have poured into them and have seen grow and develop. And indeed, if we reap a harvest, there would be no salvation were it not for the fact that Jesus planted the seed of his own life. Jesus planted the seed of his own life to save us. There would be no salvation if not for Jesus dying to take the penalty for our sin, if Jesus had not taken the punishment for our breaking of God's law. 
Jesus has sown through his own blood our salvation. And further, this should inform us that even though we may not get the results we long for when we share the gospel and we bear witness with others, it may not necessarily lead to faith immediately. What we can know and rejoice in is that there will be others who come behind us and they will reap where we have sown. But I want to close this morning by considering just the fantastic way that this whole encounter concludes. The encounter concludes with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, not with him and her, but with him and the townspeople that she gave witness to. They all come out. Notice verse 40 through 42 again. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I told you last week that it is absolutely stunning that Jesus would reveal his nature and his person to this woman at the well. I who stand before you am he. Ego am he. I am the very name of God. But equally stunning is that this town of sinners, this town of non-Jews, this town of Samaritans, they're the first group of people to make the assertion and the affirmation that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. This is profound. What did they mean by that, by saying Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world? Well, we know what they did not mean. They did not mean that everybody in the world is going to be saved because of Jesus. They did not mean that. We know they did not mean that because of what Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what did the Samaritans mean by saying Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world? What they meant is this, that Jesus can save even the most unlikely of people. He can save anyone in the world. Do you believe that? That Jesus can save anyone? I want you to think about the most unlikely person to become a Christian that you know. Somebody that you would think, this guy is so far from God. It may be the abortionist who is riding outside of a justice's home. It may be a political figure. It may be the death row inmate. Who is the most unlikely person to become a Christian that you know of? Well, the Samaritan says, Jesus, he is indeed the Savior of the world. None of them are too far from the grace of God. Because Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, there are no sins so dark that they cannot be washed clean. Because Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, there is no rebel outcast that God will not receive through his Son, Christ. This is Jesus' great passion. This is the food that consumes his heart. 
to do God's work of salvation. And church, may this be our consuming work, that we would wake up and we would go to bed with this on our hearts and our minds, bearing witness to the saving power of Jesus so that we can enter into the great harvest that he promises. Look, the fields, they're white for harvest. Let's go reap the harvest, amen? And I'll end with this, my last thought. As we plant the seed of the gospel in the world, God may be pleased to allow us to also participate in his harvest.